Welcome to episode 23 of the Romantic About Baseball podcast. I am Adam McKinnon, your co-host. Uh, I guess your host today. Uh, Jim is uh, taking the night off, uh, but I am joined today by, uh, and of course I'm fighting off a cold myself, but we're going we're gonna to fight our way through it. Uh, I'm joined today by uh, Stephen Nesbitt. He is the uh, features writer for The Athletic Pittsburgh. Um, and I'm sure with spring training, uh, you know, the big thing uh, with uh, having writers come on the show uh, during this time of year is I'm sure that spring training is just madness for you guys. So again, your, your time is valuable and we very much appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, spring training, we like to say that uh, every day is Tuesday at spring training. You kind of lose track of time. Uh, every morning is uh, the workout schedule is the same. There are very few days off. And so you, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm actually back in Pittsburgh now, but I was down in Florida for about 10 days and you sort of, you lose yourself. So it's long days, but you know, you can't complain too much about being in the Florida weather for a little while. Right. Especially, you know, in the coming from the Northeast down there, it's probably a welcome break, I'd imagine. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, so so let me ask you this. I, I try to start all guests off with the same question uh, because it interests me, um, you know, in that way. Um, what What is your baseball origin story? Like, what, where is square one for you? Oh, this is an interesting one. <laughs> uh, so so the going back to the very beginning i guess or even before me my my dad was really into baseball he's uh from birmingham michigan and so he he grew up loving the tigers and and following them and playing uh he was also six five so he played basketball too he uh was probably better at at baseball but he had the height for basketball uh so he played um honestly he played until he was he was like 40 years old not never professionally but um over in uh my parents were missionaries in france and so they lived there for 13 years i was born over there most of my siblings were born over there and my dad um seeing that there were there really no teams no clubs around um he coached a team uh, in Rochon, france and uh, he played for them until he blew out his knee and his knee still gets in trouble today um <laughs> but he, he played for a long long time so i grew up with my you know my dad still playing a bit and then uh, we really inherited the love for baseball from from him uh, i knew nothing about uh, the majors we didn't have a tv didn't weren't seeing anything over there of course the internet wasn't so popular yet right so um so we were sort of from afar uh, you know adopting his his tigers and, and figuring things out that way so the way i started playing baseball was there were no no you know youth leagues in the area everything is is totally soccer and uh so this is, this is northern france like two hours north of, of uh, paris 
and uh, with everything being soccer, we had no opportunities to, to play baseball other than just wiffle ball in our backyard, uh, in which, you know, my sisters, you know, graciously played with the boys so we could fill out enough players to have a team, nice. two teams. So, <laughs> so uh, I ended up uh, actually starting to play in a little league uh, program uh, at a NATO base in Belgium. And oh. this is something my, my dad had just simply found heard from somebody who heard from somebody else that there was a little league program at this military base in, uh, in Belgium about an hour from our home. And so, uh, so we started going there every Saturday, we'd go play games. Um, I guess the first year is just my older brother, Dan, and then my younger brothers and I, or the younger brothers and I, uh, joined in the following year. And, and that was how we, we first played. We were, uh, pretty young, probably seven years old at that point. And, uh, learning how to play, but it was a great program. And my, my brother, Dan, the oldest, ended up um, going to the uh, European finals of the uh, of the Little League World Series uh, qualifiers. Oh, okay. And uh, they ended up losing to Saudi Arabia, who who won the the regional. Um, but uh, a pretty cool opportunity. So yeah. that, <laughs> I guess that's that's where the origin begins. Is is uh, at a NATO base in Belgium. And and I can guarantee you that'll probably be the only uh, origin story that starts at at a NATO base in Belgium. When you came over to the United States, you know, uh, did you have a favorite player? I guess when you were younger. Yeah, I sh- I definitely did. It was, and this is you know probably most kids in my generation. Um, Derek Jeter was my favorite, um, probably because he was uh, a shortstop. That's the position I loved, mm-hmm. and. Um, my dream was always to, to grow up to be six foot three and 185 pounds. And now I'm almost six foot three and about six foot two and, and you know, <laughs> two thirds or something. But I, I, you know, I've been 185 and I don't quite wear it like he did. Um, <laughs> you know, it looks a little different when it's not, you know, no muscle. Right. And, uh, few people, it, few people wear it like Jeter. You, yeah, you, it's not fair so, to compare yourself. <laughs> yeah. So he was my favorite. So the, when I was, you know, big in collecting baseball cards, the, uh, it would be cool to get Tigers, but they were pretty awful at that point. Um, yeah. we, we had moved back to Michigan, so that's where we were living. But um, definitely had the Tigers as my favorite team, but I, I really liked uh, Jeter and I really liked Frank Thomas. And I don't really remember why I liked Frank Thomas, but he was great. Big oh, hurt. yeah. The, he, you know, Frank Thomas, if you didn't grow up in Chicago, I, I, having grown up in a similar generation as a, as a Braves fan, I was always – drawn to frank thomas and i feel like i feel like he's one of those players that the more people i talk to that grew up in that era of baseball they really do come back to him he's the most common player i get when i talk to folks they they say what was your favorite not favorite team player you know and frank thomas almost always comes up <laughs> yeah man he's great he was absolutely great and I, I enjoy seeing him now on broadcasts and in the in the uh I don't know if it's Emily Network, but he does uh, TV stuff. He does a great job yeah. with that too. He does. He does. He's a natural at it. Um, so you you come up and you decide, okay, uh, I'm going to be a baseball writer. Um, you start. How? Where was your journey to Pittsburgh sports at that point? Like I, you wrote for the Post Gazette, and uh, mm-hmm. that kind of brought you uh, brought you to the Pirates. But uh, you know, what was the journey leading to that? Sure. I went to the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, and there, obviously, the the big sports are um, football, basketball, and uh, ice hockey are all all big, and those are really the desirable beats when you're at the student paper. So I was there at a really, really good time. Um, A bunch of 
student journalists who just were really aspiring to do great things and to actually make a career out of it. And when I arrived at Michigan, I wasn't really sold at uh, that that was what I wanted to do. I was interested in it. I wanted to try it out and pretty quickly, uh, you know, fell in love with with um, the, the paper, with the people there and then with the possibility of, of making a career out of it. And so my, my first beat was was ice hockey. Um, I guess if you would have asked me at that point in time, I would have said covering baseball probably was my dream because if you can't play it, then covering it is, is you know, pretty good. Right. <laughs> um, but at Michigan at that point, you know, Big Ten baseball is not really um, – at that point, well, Michigan right. is now coming off of being the national runner-up. But at that point, they were, they were really nothing, and um, that was not one of the desirable beats. So at Michigan, I never actually covered a single baseball game. Um, but the, I just climbed the ranks from hockey to I did two years of football. And that, it, that's a pretty neat situation because being where Michigan is and being as big as it is, you, you are, uh, you can count yourself as competition, um, with Detroit news, Detroit free press, uh, right. you know, Cause it's on a national stage. Yeah. Their ESPN has a, has a local writer. And so you can sometimes put your stuff up against theirs and say, you know, I did all right, or at least this part of my story was just right. as good as theirs. And, and so that was a really uh, important step for me was to see um, that, you know, I'm, I might just be able to hack it along with some of these legitimate pro writers. And uh, after my, so I decided I wanted to at least give this a try. I think my, my fallback plan was always to be a teacher. That's what my dad was. He taught French and Spanish um, at all levels, but mostly at high school. And, and so I, I sort of, uh, I loved high school. I, I figured I'd be a high school teacher eventually. Right. Um, but I'd, I'd give writing a shot, even though everyone at that point is telling you, don't do it. It's oh, yeah. a terrible <laughs> idea. There's, there's no money to be made. We we literally had one day, I was covering hockey as a sophomore. Mm-hmm. Um, Red Berenson is like a, I think he's a Hall of Famer, but anyways, a very good hockey player over the years with the St. Louis Blues. He was their long, long, long time head coach at Michigan. And the uh m live reporter got laid off that week uh yeah. jeff arnold and red sat us down and is the four of us from the student paper that were covering the team and he just asked each of us what do you want to do with your career and we three of us said we wanted to uh <laughs> we we wanted to, to cover sports in some capacity and the the last one cassandra said she wanted to be a teacher and he was he was all on board with cassandra he said that's a great <laughs> idea and the rest of you it's a terrible don't do it don't go into right. business it's a bad bad situation and, and the funny thing is that the three of us are all uh, still working in, in sports and have made a made a life of it so um coming from the music industry i'm i'm very familiar with that narrative with the like everyone begging you not to do the one thing that you spend all your time doing (laughs) yeah absolutely so that um so then uh i guess the difference was i decided i needed to get some internships and then i uh didn't really have any ins anywhere um the detroit papers had no real interest in you know, I checked with them about internships and I didn't get them. So the, um, I had an offer at the Baltimore sun to come do an unpaid internship, which I thought was a pretty good, uh, pretty good deal. And then my, my oldest brother, Dan, he was at that time in uh, grad school at Carnegie Mellon here in Pittsburgh. And he said, you know, why don't you just uh, apply to the paper here? And you know, we'll, we'll, you can just crash with us for the summer. And so I, I, I kid you not, I did not know the name of any of the papers in this um, <laughs> in this city. There are two of them. Just um, diving right in. 
and I, I just googled Pittsburgh newspaper internship and found the Post Gazette, and the the deadline I think was already passed, or is it real close anyway? But I I tossed it together, said why not? I figured I'd be going to Baltimore anyway, and uh, and Jerry Micko, the sports editor at the time, called back and said uh, a couple weeks later and called and said they wanted me. So that was how I ended up in in Pittsburgh after my junior year of college. Um, had a good summer here, enjoyed it, loved the city, uh, had never been here before, even though it's, you know, probably about five hours away from, from home in Michigan and, uh, you know, turned that into, um, an internship the following year, um, after my senior year at the Indianapolis star, this one thankfully was paid, which is a really nice thing to get paid for writing stories. Right. And, and, uh, uh, in the middle of that internship, Pittsburgh paper called back and said that they had um, an opening and they were, you know, wanted to see if I was interested in it. So I was able to go straight uh, from Indianapolis back to Pittsburgh, took a job covering uh, college football, um, West Virginia fo- football, actually, because it's right. um, it's about an hour away from Pittsburgh. Morgantown is uh, it's actually closer than Penn State is. And a lot, and a of, lot people, of other places. A lot of, a lot of so, people don't realize how big Pennsylvania is. Yeah, it's massive. Having lived outside Philly, I can I can attest to the fact people say, oh, Pennsylvania. It's like, well, not really. Yeah, I mean, it's Pennsylvania, but eh, there's a lot of Pennsylvania out there. Yeah, people often ask, "Oh, so you're not too far from Philly?" I was like, "No, no, no. I'm I'm closer to <laughs> DC and Baltimore and Detroit right. and Columbus and Cincinnati." It's, uh, it's than not I weird. To... It's not weird to take a plane from Pittsburgh to Philly. <laughs> no, not at all. So, um, but I, I really did. Uh, I love Pittsburgh. I think it was a it was a great place. I never thought I'd be here that long. I remember my first year, I applied to a job back in Ann Arbor. I figured I'd I'd you know matriculate back that way. My folks are still. There, a couple of my siblings are still in Michigan, um, but then after that, I kept getting better and better opportunities at the at the newspaper. Right. Um, you know, was working for people who believed in me, which was which was huge, probably more than I believed in myself at that point, and with just getting opportunities that I knew I wouldn't get at other papers, um, right. and at bigger papers especially. If I were to, you know, land a dream job at the New York Times, I'd, I'd be covering something you know right, smaller something, and something yeah. out of the way and here they're asking me as a 24 year old or maybe 23 if i'll cover the pirates as a beat writer and i said uh yeah how do you I not will, say no to that I yeah mean, like i don't care you know if you talk to any baseball beat writer they'll tell you that it kind of ruins your your personal life you if you're if you're in a relationship if you have a great social life um like it's you're, you're not just going to be faint of heart. Busy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like it, it is really, really hard and you definitely have to learn to balance that. But at that point I was like, I'm, I, you know, I was single when I started doing it and, um, and I really had, you know, I just thought it'd be the coolest job ever. And in a ton of ways it absolutely is. I mean, the, the beat writer life is, is so, so, so cool. Uh, on the, on the other hand, I couldn't really think of doing it with, you know, a couple of kids in my, you know, and I'm and being 40 years old or something, which is yeah. a little way down the line. Um, it, it just takes you away from home so often and for stretch, uh, longer stretches of time. If it's a, you know, even if, even if it's just uh, one, one series, if you're, let's say you're a hockey writer, a football writer, you go cover one game and come back home, you're gone maybe two days, three days max. Mm-hmm. Uh, baseball is you got three or four games and you usually have to add a travel day on either side. And you could stretch that into a couple, you know, a couple a road swing that's seven or ten games and right. um, a lot of people of don't realize that to, to yeah. ten days two weeks so um, it is really hard in, in that way I did it for three years full-time 
was covering at the Post Gazette with a guy named Bill Brink, um, and uh, loved it. Uh, really thought it was it, it was it was probably uh, probably the coolest job I'll ever have. Um, now it doesn't mean I wanted to have it forever, uh, only because the schedule is so difficult. But right. um, after after three years of doing that, I got I got married, and and so it was time for a change. But it also just worked out that um, there was an opening at work and an editor who. Um, who, who liked what I was able to do with features and longer form stories and um, gave me a, the enterprise job, which I know for non-newspaper people don't, doesn't really make sense. It's just like a long form features right. job. You, you go tell, you tell stories, go tell right. long stories. And it doesn't really matter which beat they're on if they're uh, pirates or Steelers or penguins or college or high school or whatever. So, um, so that's what I, that's what I moved to. And it's a totally different pace, very, very different pace. You might go, from writing two stories a day, three stories a day to, um, a couple stories a month and, um, very different job. I loved it just as much. Um, it yeah. just takes you, you, you're not, you're no longer embedded with the team. So that's a really different, uh, different experiences, a lot more, you know, just w- digging into a story for weeks and months at a time. And yeah. so I would say the stories when they finally come out are more rewarding than any of the beat stories, but they, uh, they're just so few and far between. So there's definitely a lot of pressure yeah. on each one of them to hit. So in the job I have now, I, I moved over to the athletic last, um, last April to essentially take the same job, uh, with the athletic, the difference being, um, they want their writers to write more often than I was writing. I was probably writing, you know, two times a month at the paper. And now we we're more in the, the five to seven range, right. uh, or seven to 10 even. So, um, that's good because we have a we have a smaller staff and so it's good to keep us all writing and keep you know the content sure. flowing uh, even if we're not necessarily a content mill like other places are so well and digital um, you know the the reputation that comes with the athletic too you know the the quality of the work and it's got to be well researched and and so you know that kind of that kind of leads me into it where you know you're writing longer form stories and you're doing it with the pittsburgh pirates which you know over the your time have seen some really some good times and some not so good times um you know the the tone and tenor of the stories you know right now for example you're writing for a rebuilding team right um you know how does that affect how you approach stories are you are you trying to is it a little bit like digging for gold so to speak because i mean if you're writing for say the dodgers i mean there's there's plenty to talk about and it's all virtually all positive in a lot of ways right um right so how do you how do you approach those stories right so the 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 benefit I have, I think from not being from around here is like, I, my, my heart is not in the pirates at all, which is really helpful when you're trying to just look for interesting stories. If, if they're a playoff team, like whatever, you know, I, I guess I, I would be lying if I said I, I would rather they lose than win. Cause it's cool when they win and you get to cover playoff games. Like that's really a fun environment right. and it's, it's fun to watch great baseball. Um, at the same time, like if they lose, you know, 70 80 90 100 games like it's you know it's not like my my childhood dreams are shattered or something um i didn't grow up with this team i wasn't around when barry bonds was on the team or Andy van slyke or anything like that so i don't have those those memories and i think it does allow me to uh be just a little more level-headed when i look at this team uh not saying that it's like a crazy homer 
crowd around here. There's some really, really good baseball writers um, in town, and there have been for a long time. But um, I do think that um, as you look at this team now, you write this. It's not the intriguing team it was in 2015 and 2014 and 2013 when they had some of these veteran guys, some of these really interesting characters and really good ball players coming through the system. And they also had a pretty loaded uh, one, you know, one of the best farm systems in the game at that point in time. So where we stand today is a really different time. And I'm, you know, I'm not going to lie to you and tell you that that is just as fun to follow this team as it was in 2015. Because, yeah, it's 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 great to follow a team that has World Series aspirations. They're coming off of in 2015 a, a 98 win season, and that's that's so much fun to follow. You right. know, and that it's pretty great to have, to go through the September stretch and have every game mean something just from a people are reading my stuff perspective. Sure. Um, and then you flip to today and I was just down in, in spring training and trying to rack my brain for what, what to write. And a lot of this boils down to what do people want to read? Because you do want to, I mean, you don't want to just be a completely detached uh, newspaper or media writer and just write what you care about. Because there does become like, come a point where like you have to answer to the reader at some point. You, you don't necessarily need to write every opinion that they hold or, or, or whatnot. And they can disagree with you. And that's totally, totally fair, totally fine. But there is a point where you have to be addressing the issues they care about. Right. And you have to balance, so, right? You have to balance absolutely. between pandering to the, to the hometown crowd, but also presenting something that is digestible for someone who maybe doesn't follow the pirates, you know, widen the base, so to speak, right? Right. Right. So, so you have to write what you actually believe, right? You don't want to be compromising, um, just to, just to cater to to fans, but you, you do have to be aware that we're covering a rebuilding team. So what are fans going to care about? Well, they're going to be upset that the payroll is not higher and Hey, that's valid, right? Right. If you have a $51 million payroll, you deserve to, to be questioned and, and, and receive some scorn. You have, you have chosen to not spend money in this situation and they have chosen that to lesser degrees over the years and, and not provided, uh, evidence that uh, that you know the business model requires that here in Pittsburgh. So, you know they deserve. Um, you know I, I need to be writing about the payroll from time to time. Now, Pirates fans would like me to write about it every day, and we're just not going to do that. That's not right. You know, not... there's nothing new to say right now, right. other than you know nutting's cheap, which is what you know fans would want me to say every day. Sure. Then then and... you know this just not adding value to the conversation. So. Um, you know, there's there's stuff we could get away with in 2015 that you can't really get away with right now. Uh, right. A very silly example is, I believe it was 2016 uh, spring training, uh, Adam Barry, who's at MLB.com, he and I walked around the clubhouse. It was just a, like a very silly thought the first week of camp. And I was like, man, there's a bunch of tall guys in here. I wonder, it, I wonder like what percentage of guys in here could dunk. And we just walked around <laughs> the clubhouse, pulled every, everybody on the 40-man roster and and I put together like a little blog post that you can still find on the Post Gazette um, about you know who could dunk and it's not like that thing ever drew drew like clicks or anything. Yeah, but, but it's we easier. Had, we had fun teams, with it. And yeah, people had fun with winning. it, and it didn't matter at all. It's just something. That, now, if I were to like trot that out tomorrow, people would go like just ballistic on me. Sure. And yeah. and and be furious that I'm not taking you know a bad team more seriously. So the, the, you do have to like <laughs> recognize that they're maybe not this is maybe not the time for that uh, sure because yeah. it's not that fans aren't you know aren't eager to read at this point because interest in the pirates or any team whether they're good or terrible there's always something interesting <clears throat> to, to to write and to read 
and a lot of times it's spring training brings with it a ton of interesting um underdog stories people who are you know just hoping for a chance and um it, it also brings with it uh <laughs> prospect season which is which is when you have a rebuilding team it's about right. the only season you have so yeah the the pirates have um it's not that the cupboard is totally bare right now. They have fewer exciting prospects than they did five years ago. Right. Um, you've seen some of them flourishing with the Tampa Bay Rays recently. Yeah, but, yeah, that's um, that's actually that's actually going to be something we're going to get into after the break yeah. here. So we're we're going to take a quick break, and then when we come back, um, we're we're going to talk about the farm system. We're going to talk about looking forward to 2020, and and things like that uh, for the Pirates. So we'll be right back. And we're back uh, again. With us is uh, is uh, Stephen Nesbitt uh, from the Athletic uh, Pittsburgh. Uh, Jim has the night off tonight, so uh, you know we're going to uh, we're gonna we talked about the journey getting here, and now we're going to talk about uh, what we're what's going on in the future, specifically in 2020 and beyond for the Pirates. So, um, so, you know, Stephen, going into 2020, I mean, it's pretty obvious. It's not news to anybody. Uh, this isn't a contending team this year. So, Correct. right. So, Correct. so I don't feel, I feel like I'm not breaking news here. We're, we're Jim and I will always say we are not, we, we're not going to break news here. Um, and, uh, so a two part questions, um, one, you know, new GM, Ben sharing, Ben Sherrington comes in. What do you think the expectations are for him in his first season? And then as a follow-up, what, and I guess maybe it's the same question, really, like what are they looking to accomplish? What does 2020, what boxes are they trying to check for this rebuilding process? Yeah, so I'll start with the the second question because I think that's a relatively simple answer. What they are trying to accomplish this year is to get their... Uh, their potential top prospects. Well, I mean, they're, they are their top prospects. Um, getting them to the major leagues and getting them to get somewhat established in the major leagues. You have a, a starting pitcher, Mitch Keller, who mm-hmm. has gone from being one of the very top prospects in in, um, in baseball to being just a, a, a maybe prospect. I think Keith Law recently said he has you know, starter ceiling, but probably more realistic, uh, that he's, he's a reliever. Well, that, that would be a major bummer for the pirates and pirates fans. Right. This is a guy you, you believed in big time. He developed really well. And, and basically where he's sitting right now is he's a guy with velocity and an, an out pitch, uh, with his curveball, Uh, but he has, has just like his fastballs flattened out in the majors and he has missed spots too frequently and, and gotten hit really hard. Um, but hey, you saw the same exact same thing with Tyler Glass now a couple of years ago, and now we've we've seen the you know that can be a total disaster if you give up right. on a guy like yeah, that. Yeah. Um, so I think the goal this year, let's get Mitch Keller to really get settled in the majors again. Young pitchers always take their lumps, uh, and he certainly took his last year. So maybe you can get him to to give you you know thirty starts this year, and it doesn't need to be a a three ERA. Maybe it's a four something, but he. He gets, you know, gets to know what what major league life is like. He gets a little more comfortable, and he starts attacking more rather than being reactive on the mound. You also have 
Um, would you Brian. would you call would you call because I, I I love Brian Hayes and, and I want to talk yeah. about him but for Mitch Keller would you realistically say that let's say he puts up about a hundred and hundred fifty innings uh hundred sixty innings low e, low fours ERA roughly eight 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 K per nine like is that is that is would you consider that or would Pirates fans consider that a successful because you know again it's not like this guy has to roll out and be an ace this year. Would would that be considered a, a big success for him this year? I think it would absolutely be considered a big success. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anything to show that like he has potential to still have you know, ace or t- near top of the rotation stuff sure. would would be fantastic. I mean, he's not going to be Garrett Cole. Garrett Cole rolled out, rolled rolled through the minors in, in a hurry and and got there at 22 years old and, and spun a, a you know a 320 I think ERA his, his first year and you know 350 or so the the next and then he was down in the twos and, and you know pretty good pitcher Garrett Cole. But you know even even a guy like him right right away isn't going to be putting up uh, you know Cy Young numbers and so. With Mitch, he doesn't have that same stuff, and maybe he maybe has more uh, Tyler Glasnow stuff with a little less velocity. Um, okay, let's let's figure out how to get you into the range where you're one year away instead of you know right now you can look at Mitch Keller and say I don't know how far away he is. He hasn't shown me at the major league level that he can get outs. And sure. let let's eliminate some of those question marks this year. Let's spend our season doing that because you could absolutely. Uh, you know, use this season to start him out at AAA and let him gain confidence by mowing through hitters. And meanwhile, you're able to, you know, roster management being what it is, hold on to a couple of these arms you're interested in at the end of spring training. And he has options and he can come back later. Um, personally, I, I think that's a, that's a terrible idea. He doesn't need to get more outs in the minors. He knows how to do that. You look at his career numbers in the right. minors, he's already proven he can be a great, fantastic top of the line, uh, award winning. Uh, minor league pitcher he needs to see success in the and, and some more failure sure in, sure in the majors so I, I think that's where i sit with mitch is that um getting through a full season of the majors and, and putting up even um you know decent numbers would be a big win and so you know to kind of pivot here you know we're talking about we we hinted the first part of the question about sherrington for example you know he he's a guy that has a rep you know when he was with the red Sox and things like that um how do you how do you do you think that he's going to look at it that way do you feel as though or do you feel as though he's in it in the um he's kind of in the deep freeze stage you know where there's going to be a lot of you know service time manipulation and things like that uh how do you think how do you think Sherrington's going to approach this this rebuilding team in that with, with guys like Keller and Hayes and and players like that yeah, I think they're going to be strategic with service time stuff. I, I don't think they're going to do some, anything completely outrageous, but the Pirates have for years and years done Super 2 pretty effectively, haven't really gotten screwed by that uh, mm-hmm. with, with Cole or Polanco, I mean, not Polanco, but Cole or, or you know, Bell, any of these guys. They haven't really messed that up. Um, I, I figure they're, they're going to um, continue to do that. Brian Hayes won't be there on opening day, and, and it's actually pretty fair because he hasn't hit very well at AAA. So I, I right. think he could be a mid-season call-up. This guy's got a fantastic glove. He's great to watch. Uh, obviously, he's a pedigree with his dad, Charlie, uh, being a, a you know World Series winner and, and a longtime big leaguer. So uh, I think, Charrington, to go back to what you originally had asked, the goal for this year is to um, bolster and restock this farm system. So he's already mm-hmm. begun to do that by trading 
um, Starling Marte, who's a guy uh, in his final year under contract, right? Um, or I guess he maybe has a couple years left. I'm trying to remember, but anyway, nearing the end of his contract, they were not going to win um, or be be you know World Series contenders. Uh, in the remainder of his contract, and he's on the wrong side of 30. Um, I think he has maybe two years left, as, as I think about it. But you trade him for two 19-year-olds, um, mm. you know, Brennan, Brennan Malone and Leo Perguero. These are dart throws, right? You don't know if these guys will actually be any good when they get to 22, 23, but hey, they've got some promise. They've got high ceilings. And uh, if even one of them pans out, then you got, you know, six, seven more years of this guy. So, that uh, that's a move that makes sense. And, and honestly, if you were to look at the Pirates over the last handful of years, um, the biggest trades they've made were not Marte. They were Garrett Cole and Andrew McCutcheon back-to-back. Right. Uh, what did they do in those trades? They opted for a win-now or win-soon mentality. Right. And the, the only one of those players that's been a difference maker is Brian Reynolds in the McCutcheon trade, which, hey, total credit to Neil Huntington there. That trade has been... Uh, fabulous yeah. because McCutcheon it's, it's reaped had, uh, it's it's reaped rewards yeah so mccutcheon didn't have a whole lot left uh reynolds has been um a revelation and he will be for a long time i think here but then the other trade is you gave up garrett cole who you never were able to get to his ceiling and uh you get back you know joe musgrove who's, who's probably got more in the tank but still is you know yeah, halfway, he's, more than halfway through his contract and hasn't been anything special. And then a, just a collection of uh, of mediocre guys, including a third baseman, Colin Moran, who uh, has been almost the definition of average so far. So yeah. uh, had they chosen at that point in time to say, hey, Astros, uh, we don't care about these guys who are already in AAA. Give us uh, five, six of your uh, Dominican uh, summer yeah. league guys or your your rookie ball guys or your your single A guys and we're going to be great in four years, then this rebuild could have come around a lot sooner, right? Sure. Um, but the Pirates were operating under the impression or the false hope, I guess, the belief that they could uh, put together a contending team every year. And that was something they, I'm not just making that up, they literally told us that that was their goal, was to make a borderline playoff team every year to try to get into that playoff picture. And then once you get into the picture, then you you spend uh, a little bit more at the trade deadline, you trade a little bit more at the trade deadline, and you try to put yourself over the edge. And it worked right. for a couple of years, 2013 to 15. They were able to to do that, and they did supplement in their their uh their, their roster and the in the salary you know the payroll did grow so credit there but after that when things started to fail rather than saying you know what this is a good time for us to step back and and bridge for right. two years we kind um, of just kept drilling deeper they kept trying yeah. and that yeah. put them in a terrible place and that's why um that's why they end up doing a desperation move trying to bring in chris archer to try to put them over the top and you end up getting giving up three guys and austin meadows tyler glassdown and shane boz who are going to hurt you for the next decade that's and you know that that sort of leads you know leads into the next thing where you you've officially you know of and of all the good moves they've made that that misstep will be worn by the organization for some time um, mm-hmm. So now you're in the throes of a rebuild, and the the goal, as we've kind of talked about, is cheap, controllable talent. You got to build a core of those players to lead you to a window of contention. You know, especially when you know with as many baseball owners now crying poor, uh, Pittsburgh is is no not unique. You know, the Pirates aren't unique in that way. Um, 
So, you know, I look at the um, I look at the team and uh, according to Sport Track, you've got a roster almost entirely made up. I think there's only two veteran deals on this on this uh, on the roster uh, belonging to Ger- Gerard Dyson and, and Chris Archer. And, you know, one of the, que- the one of the questions going in, you look at Josh Bell, who's ar- in arbitration, Joe Musgrove, arbitration, Jamison Tyone, who's, of course, you know, on the 60-day uh, IL with the, uh, the um, I think it was Tommy John, right? It was Tommy John? Yeah, his second Tommy yeah, John. Yeah, second Tommy John. So what's interesting to me is, like, you look at a rebuilding team, and, and the, you typically look for two traits, right? You look for the young talent, which the Pirates do have. I think that there's there's a lot of upside, you know, players, upside plays, if you will, on this roster. And then you look for like tradable veterans, something to like to get that currency back. And I, you know, the looking up and down the roster, the biggest uh, name that I see is Chris Archer. And and so I'm thinking to myself, you know, if Chris Archer can find himself back to his, uh, you know, his mid 2010s form, you know, and get himself into that high strikeout, so he's always going to give you a high ERA. He's always going to give you a high ERA. I think we we're all we've all accepted this now, but. Is it something where, you know, do you think he could be a tradable piece? Let's say we get towards the deadline and, and we're looking at a Chris Archer. Uh, and I, I dare I, I feel bad saying vintage Chris Archer because we're talking like 2015, 2016 here. Yeah. But we get to an effective Chris Archer. Is is this is this a piece that the Pirates are just going to be? I, if I'm them, I'm thinking I'm trying to unload him, right? Oh yeah, that's 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 a hundred percent the 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 goal here. Um, to even circle back to you know I, earlier, I said the the goal for twenty twenty is to get these guys you know solidified and established in the majors. Uh, if I were to add a second goal, you know beyond sure. restocking the farm system, it is um, to turn some of these underperforming guys into tradable assets. And there are um, you know you mentioned Archer. There there are a couple others. To consider too, if you look, um, Josh Bell even ha- went from having, you know, you know, one of the best first halves in Pirates history last year to really falling apart down the stretch. His defense is atrocious, and right. um, if you could get him to put together a full season here, he would he would command a ton, right? If you trade him next offseason with a couple years left under contract, um, he's not going to resign here. It's uh, sign an extension. He's not going to sign here as a free agent. He's got. Scott Boris is his agent. That's just not happening. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so if you can turn him into, you know, let's say by the trade deadline, he has, um, you know, 25 homers and is batting two, 290. Um, you know, maybe this is the time uh, to say, yeah, by the end of his contract, we're probably not going to be in our window. Or we're going to have to have traded him by, you know, two years from now. Then, then why don't you get rid of him now and, and get as much as you can for him? Uh, same deal with with Gregory Polanco, who has a few years left on his contract extension. And this is a guy who had, uh, you know, all the promise in the world a couple of years ago, and is just uh, mostly because of injuries, not ever totally panned out. Mm-hmm. Um, but if he has a first half, do you get rid of him? Maybe. Um, you know, Joe Musgrove, Trevor Williams are both guys who are coming off of, like Archer, coming off of a pretty uh, bad year. I think they both had ERAs in the fives. Um, you know, if you can have, you know, you, you hit middle of July and two of those three guys 
have ERAs that start with, you know, low fours or maybe start sure. with a three, then yeah, let's let's flip that guy and bring some assets back. So I think uh, we are going to see some of these guys move to this year, and it's going to be guys, not necessarily the Dysons who are, uh, who are you know, one year under contract, uh, but some of the guys who have a couple years left because there's no better way to uh, kick kickstart this, this, you know, rebuild into overdrive um, than, than to get a couple guys, a uh, couple young guys for someone who is, um, a couple years away, two years away, maybe from from free agency, because the pirates, you know, publicly won't even say rebuild. Um, right. They've been very, they've been be- very gun shy about that. That very, term. very much so. And I truly think they they look at this more as a bridge than a than a rebuild because they they don't think they need to totally tear down. It's not like they have nothing there. They do have some interesting stuff. They do have a. Uh, an okay farm system as it is with some really interesting pieces it's the depth that's the problem right um but the the other thing is yeah they, they think they can win in in you know two years three years rather than what we're talking about with the astros and the royals where or cincinnati where it's you know detroit it's like six seven years you know or sure. you never come out of it maybe so that's going to be the interesting thing to watch here is um how you know which of these guys are you okay with trading um, that sort of signals how far down the road you can expect them to start winning. Right. And, you know, what's interesting to me is when I look at the team and I look at a guy like, say, Chris Archer, for example, you know, I, I come back to him because, you know, looking up and down the roster, he's, again, he's one of the few on the veteran contract. You know, his stuff is good, but, you know, it just is, he seems like a guy that stay he just can't stay away from the barrel of the bat you know he's he's got a 10 and a half percent barrel rate which is elite bad <laughs> um yeah. his walk rates back over 10 percent. but you know the the more i kind of dug into it a, a, a thought kind of surfaced because you look at that a pitcher like that that has great stuff and it's just you know in the it just seems like he if he's getting barreled up that much he's staying in the strike zone um, and so my thought is, I look. I took a second and I looked at, say, the defensive metrics. And I know this is, and this is what stuck out to me about this team so much, is that according to Fantrax's defense, defense metric, the Pirates were really decisively the worst team in baseball last season. Oh, yeah. So, you know, I tend to think that pitcher, more cerebral type pitchers like, say, Chris Archer, for example, or you look at guys like uh, like Joe Musgrove, or you look at pitchers in these styles, you know, do you think that, first off, does that does that affecting how they pitch, you know, when they know the guys behind them, like, can't feel like Colin Moran was, was not good. Um, you know, you go around the infield. Josh Bell, you just alluded to, was was not good. Uh, you know, so you got problems at the corners. But then, I, you know, when you look into it a little bit further and you say, okay, Brian Reynolds is a solid left fielder. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Gerard Dyson, a great glove. Uh, you've got Cabrian Hayes, which, you know, he comes up midseason, let's just say hypothetically, right? Can you do you think that there if when you go from that bad to say like average, that makes it that can make an, a, a tangible impact on the team. Um, do you think that do you think that this is like a known thing inside of, of Pittsburgh? Like, is, is this something that has been made a priority? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I I think the day that they signed Dra Dyson, um, just you know one year two million dollar deal almost nothing in this day and age 
um, with veteran deals. Um, yeah, I, we asked uh, Ben Charrington that basically you've, it looks like all the moves you've made this offseason, granted that isn't very many, have been to make your defense better, um, basically as, as, as a strategic thing. And they won't come right out and say that, yeah, we're not going to, we're not going to have any offense this year. Right, right. But but if you read between the lines, absolutely. What they're doing here is trying to get the best defense that, you know, $51 million can buy and using that to uh, to get the most out of these pitchers. Because like I mentioned, you know, just that that top three of Archer, Musgrove, Williams, um, and you can toss in Keller to it there if you want. Um, you know, if you can get those guys, to their numbers to come down to, to – you know, come down to earth a little bit. I mean, you have some real tradable guys there. Or, right. you know, if you could, um, basically, like, that's that's the, the thing that will save this team the fastest is if the pitching turns around. And nothing helps pitching turn around better than good pitch receivers and catchers and good defense. So the catchers they have right now, if you look uh, back at those numbers, they had a – uh, you know, Francisco Cervelli was their guy for a while, and they had a guy coming up behind him, Elias Diaz, who was their catcher in waiting for a long time, and, and he took over the starting job at various points when when uh, Cervelli was injured and then when he was traded. And Diaz had just atrocious numbers last year, just just right. like comically bad numbers, and they ended up DFAing him at the or um, non-tendering him last fall. Mm-hmm. Um, again, this guy they had waited so long for him to to make it the majors, and and just just the numbers are so bad defensively that they said never mind and they were left with one catcher at that point which is jacob stallings jacob stallings is is you know a six five dude um who's 20 no he's already i think maybe 30 years old uh he is not really a prospect but he is just i you know he looks like a guy who's gonna be a career triple a catcher and just a depth guy good for him and he ended up starting some real games and batting just around 300 so like fantastic for him this is a guy who probably yeah, right. still be in baseball at this point but they now it's like that's the only guy you have left he's a great framer he really worked on it last year his numbers are really good and the only people they've brought in uh this offseason are john ryan murphy on a minor league deal he's a veteran another good defensive metrics guy right. and luke maley from the uh the blue jays who is an, just a terrible hitter like we're talking like a buck 90 hitter but has really good defensive numbers. And, and so if you take all that together, right. then what you're seeing is, yeah, that's exactly what they're trying to do is, you know, we might lose a ton of games and we probably were going to anyway, especially right. if we only spend $51 million. Um, but we're going to do it in a way that we have a great right. defense because what's worse than being a bad team with a terrible defense? Right. What it's, they almost, were last year. it's almost it's like, like if you're going to lose, you're going to lose lose gracefully if there's such a thing. Um, yeah. and, and so that was what I found most compelling is like, uh, you know, when you find a team, you know, you see the deficiencies and you wonder to yourself, okay, so this is clearly a deficiency. But what I find interesting is that there's clearly answers either arriving in, say, Dyson, developing in Hayes, or, you know, there there seems to be tangible improvements. And so when you look up and down the team, like, you know, you look, you compare them to some of the other rebuilding teams. You compare them to Detroit, to Baltimore, to these other teams. And I know that those are two extreme examples of, of tanking. There, there's rebuilding, then there's tanking, right? And 
So I look at the Pirates, and, I, and of all of the rebuilding teams, you look at them and say, while they're not a good team, there seems to be a, a tangible amount of upside. Uh, what's the give us something to to watch for in that way? Like, what kind of upside? What kind of upside could we see this year? Yeah. So if you like look across the positions, there is a way to look at this team and say, you know, they could be all right this year. Um, you do have to consider that the, the rest of the division, I think the exception being the Chicago Cubs has all gotten stronger and the Cubs are already light years better than the, the pirates. Right. I mean, the Cincinnati Reds were, were their partners in the cellar of the NL central for, you know, a long time now. Uh, and especially the last, you know, couple of years, now the Reds have gone out and, and improved across the board. And and so the bottom line is this looks like a team that's going to lose a lot. And it might not lose an embarrassing amount because, you know, I think USA Today projected they were going to – or predicted they were going to lose, I think, 104 games or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't – they, you know – I don't think they're going to lose that many. I think they're probably going to lose 90 or something in the range of that. But but there's there's absolutely a possibility that Chris Archer is, you know, significantly better or Joe Musgrove is significantly better or Trevor Williams. There there are there's a weird way to say it, but there are, there are enough guys who who like drastically underperformed last year right. that even just them coming back to average is going to uh, to go a long way for this team, especially the pitching. Well, and, and um, they, they've made, and it goes back. It goes back to the defense too, right? If if the if you get Archer to you know, and maybe regression's not the right word, but you know what I'm getting at. If you get Chris Archer to come back to more of his normal form, you get Joe Musgrove to even just marginal improvements on the pitchers with significant improvements at the defense. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. You could be talking about a, a team with a pretty wide range of outcomes, you know, as yeah, opposed yeah. to just being pigeonholed into that, oh, they're going to lose 100 games and, and this year doesn't matter. Right. And so in, in the meantime, like while we watch <clears throat> and wait for some of that to happen, I'm, I'm very interested in seeing what happens with some of these, with some of these prospects. Um, they have been uh, terrible at developing relief pitchers. Um, they had a couple guys come through – shoot probably like seven years ago now in tony watson and um and jared hughes but since then they really have developed just next to no one mm-hmm. um they have this interesting guy <laughs> very interesting character um uh, it was their double a closer i think last year definitely a reliever this guy throws gas his name is blake cedarland who is kind of catching the eye of everybody at spring training it's his first major league spring training and uh yeah this guy throws you know 98 to 101 with his fastball and has a you know, bunch of pitchers and i don't know if this dude's gonna click but he's definitely something to watch and he's not even considered one of their top prospects right um but there are there are some guys like that key brian hayes is gonna be um man i'm so excited to see him play there, there's more. star potential i mean uh, i think it's been said uh, on multiple places if this kid can hit 250 and, and just with a decent batted batted ball profile to go with the an elite elite glove yeah um i mean yeah the, there's there's talk of this kid being a superstar yeah and, and the other one to toss into that mix is i don't know if superstar is necessarily where the ceiling is on this guy but um but o'neill cruz is a shortstop who's who's mm-hmm. you guys should look him up he's six foot seven yep um and just like just a monster and the way he can swing the bat is is insane. Uh, he looks a lot like um, Gregory Polanco did in like single A, super skinny, um, 
tall kid out of the Dominican. I think O'Neal, I mean, obviously he's taller than Greg is by a couple inches, but I do think he's going to inevitably fill out some more, which will be great for his, his power, which already is pretty, uh, you know, it's like, it's, uh, you know, guys like, like every guy who's played with him has a story about the sure. light tower power. <laughs> um, but I do think he's going to fill out and not be able to play shortstop. So I don't know if, if that's going to be third base or first base or right field. Um, but he's a guy who's going to, he's going to, uh, probably be at triple a this season i don't know if you start at triple a but he'll 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 be close and he's still really young so um there are some of those guys to watch and he came over just because the the dodgers gave him away in the tony watson trade um, right. for a rental so um so so those are a couple of guys and I, and I truly like truly am really interested to watch mitch keller this year um, and we've talked about him, you know, right. enough, but that's a guy who has such good stuff, such good upside. And he just, I think just needs to see some success in the majors and that'll start to feed itself because that was a, that was the deal with Tyler glass. Now is he saw failure time and again, and start, tried to reinvent himself with the pirates to be a different type of pitcher, to be more finesse. And he got the clean slate when he got traded over to the Rays, and he just started to go back to what he's good at. And what that's what he's good at is simply like I have the best stuff around, right. and I have elite velocity. And so as long as I can throw strikes, I'll be a great pitcher, and that's that's what he's doing. So uh, I, give us um, give us uh, you know we talked about for example all of the possible outcomes for this team this year. Um, what do you, what do you think for like, a, I'm not going to, you know, put you on the spot too badly or anything like that, but like, can we expect say, like, I heard you kind of allude to it earlier. Can we expect something like a, you know, 72 and 90 season this year from the pirates? I think that's really, that's very realistic. Now, a lot of this depends how gutted they are after the trade deadline. Mm-hmm. Like if you have, you know, if you have a team tracking toward that, but Chris Archer is doing well and you know, John Musgrove's doing well and Josh Bell's doing well and they all get traded, then you might see a big drop off in the second half. Um, but I mean, I think that's, I think, I think a 70, um, you know, 70 win team, 72 win team is more realistic than, you know, 60, which is kind of sure. where, um, I think, what is it? 58 in one Oh four, I think is where USA today had them. Yeah. That's a little, um, that's a little rough. <laughs> so like, I, I don't see, you know, I think 72 is way more realistic for them. Um, either one's possible, but, but I, I think they have enough talent and enough guys who are going to start to figure it out. Um, because I mean, I, I don't think, you know, it can be definitely overplayed, but I think it is actually important to some degree, just getting a, a fresh start and clearing the air with a new staff. Um, you know, they have, basically everybody is new on the staff and in the front office uh, with a couple exceptions like hitting coach Rick Eckstein and, um, and, uh, you know, bullpen coach, uh, Justin message. Those guys are very well liked players. All like them. They're, they're, they're happy. They're back. Um, but I, I, you know, I think some of these guys with a fresh start are going to figure it out and that's, you know, inevitably going to help turn things around because this is a team that was, you know, having multiple clubhouse fights and breaking each other's hands right, and yeah um you know closer going to jail and all that stuff it was about as bad as it gets last year right okay uh well again uh, you know thank you so much for uh, for coming on steven nesbitt uh, where, where can people find you on social media yeah you can find me on twitter at uh, steven j nesbitt uh steven with a ph and uh and that's about it yeah my work's on theathletic.com 
fantastic. Well, hey, we appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming on, and uh, and uh, hopefully we'll be catching up with you another time. You bet. Thank you.